Good to see you guys. Good to see everyone here today. Welcome to Trinity. And special welcome to some of our guests, or well, not some of them. That was the wrong thing to say. All of our guests. <laughs> Just the ones we like. No, I'm kidding. It's good to see everyone. So we're continuing our series called Questioning God. Questioning God. And uh, the question that we're answering today is, uh, how can a loving God send people to hell? How can a loving God send people to hell? These are big. All these weeks, if you've missed any of these, these are on our YouTube channel. They're on iTunes podcast. You can catch up with them. These are big questions. Everyone asks these kinds of questions. And, you know, if you're thinking of people in your mind that uh, might have these questions or you might think, man, this person really needs to hear this, you know, what's the harm in extending an invitation to them or sharing this content uh, with them? Just want to encourage you to be thinking about that. Here's my contention. Each and every week I've been starting with this introduction. I want to repeat it today because it's so important. Uh, the idea that my contention is this, that everyone's, want, everyone wants to believe in something spiritual, something transcendent. And so even those who deny God will find themselves praying to God in times of hardship and trouble. The idea that God loves you, that he's made you in his image, that he delights in you, that he wants to save you from evil, that he's interested in your flourishing. That idea, we believe it's true, but, but just the idea itself being out there in the world will always draw people towards religious spiritual questions and exploring religious spiritual truth. It's a powerful, it's a powerful idea that will always captivate the human heart. Even though that's true, and even though people, I think, are, are striving for spirituality, there's tons of barriers tons of barriers for people. And we're trying to, in this series, lower the barriers so that people can come into faith. But also, for those of us who already believe, we've got, we also have doubts. And we have to grapple with our doubts and try to strengthen our faith. So I've been drawing a lot of this content, some of this content, from Tim Keller's book, uh, The Reason for God, which I would highly recommend that book. Today I'm going to be preaching from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. It will come up on the screen. We also have free Bibles in the lobby, so if you need a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, please uh, take it and keep it. We love to, uh, to give out Bibles to people. In the passage we're reading today, very, you know, well, pretty well-known passage from the life and ministry of Jesus, Jesus is telling or giving a teaching uh, about Lazarus and the rich man and how they lived. And then it tells us of their death. They both die, and Lazarus goes to be with God, and the rich man is without God. And herein lies the subject matter for today, the topic of hell. And boy, is it a hell of a topic. Somebody asked me if I had a Super Bowl joke today, but I said I didn't have a Super Bowl joke because the Super Bowl is a joke. So <laughs> thanks to my son, he gave me that one. He gave me that one. Hell is one of, if not the most offensive and difficult topics for Christians to tackle in our context, in our culture. So it's been nice knowing you. I bid you a nice, kind farewell. Please write something nice in my obituary. I hope to see you in heaven. And uh, actually, today's sermon can help you with that as well. So let's pray and let's turn to the Bible for help. Jesus, we need you today. Help us to not shy away from these, these such hard topics, and especially the one today. Help us to understand your word. Help us to understand the truth. Help us to grapple with this. I pray for anyone here who is, is, is closed-minded to, to this. I pray open up their mind now. And, and for anyone who doesn't believe, give them the faith to believe. And for those of us who already belong to you, strengthen our faith. Help us to hope in your love and your grace and in your justice as well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Jesus says this. He says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple 
and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being tormented, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have, I have five brothers, so that they, he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is God's word. Christianity teaches us that the temporary life we live here on earth directly affects our eternal existence beyond this life. They're completely connected together. And so the rich, we see this in the rich man's life. We see the way, the kind of life he lived, the way he lived, the way he treated people, his selfishness, the kind of the billionaire ego that this guy had, the kind of ego that probably would be jealous that Jeff Bezos beat him to space. His attitude, general attitude towards God. We see all of, all of this nastiness, he ends up in a pretty bad place ends up in a pretty bad place. Now, the Bible is unapologetic about the idea of judgment. It talks about several judgments, but also a day, a final day of judgment where God will hold everyone accountable for what they do. Now, we like the idea of people in powerful positions being held accountable for what they do. We like that idea. We want people in powerful positions to be held accountable for their actions, so there to be consequences for the things that they do wrong, to be held accountable. Well, the Bible ups the stakes on this, and it's revealed that God has an accountability plan for everyone. No one will get away with anything, whether you delete your tweets or not. So this, this idea is wonderful and, and, and amazing if you've been wronged because, well, then the people who have wronged you, it'll be made right. They'll be held accountable for it. But it's also a terrifying idea because everybody has done wrong. In fact, all world religions believe in judgment. All world religion, Judaism believes in judgment, Islam believes in judgment, Hinduism believes in judgment, Sikhs believe in judgment, even pantheistic religions like Buddhism believe in karma, the idea that there's a, a blind force in the universe just 
giving out equal retribution for the wrongs that people have done. You know, people call it instant karma sometimes, right? This, this, uh, this is the idea. All world religions have this view. And so actually traditional cultures in the world today, traditional cultures are not offended by the idea of judgment and hell. They have zero problem with it. You, you tell them what's in the Bible, they're like, yeah, we have something like that in our own religion too. No problem whatsoever. In fact, those traditional cultures tend to be more offended by Jesus' teaching on turning the other cheek and redemption and forgiveness. They tend to see that as weakness. Like, oh, that's, that's not a good idea. Shouldn't do that. Westerners, though, we tend to like the idea. We like the idea of turning the other cheek. And we have a really hard time with the idea of hell. You know, the hell seems a bit, uh, seems a little over the top, you know, compared to like a, a double cheek slap. You know, it's like this, I'm not sure about this. But herein lies a dilemma, because for Western and Eastern cultures, these two values are flip-flopped. And so the dilemma for the average person on the street, especially in our context, if you were to stop somebody and ask them, is our culture superior than other cultures? If you can imagine stopping the average Chicago and asking them that question, is our culture superior to other cultures? People would emphatically say, no, no, you can't say that. That's offensive. You can't say that. But herein lies the conundrum. The problem is, how can we say that other, we're not superior to other cultures, but then deny all of the traditional cultures their view of judgment and to say they're wrong and our view is actually superior, that there is no, well, there's not, not, it's not a God who hates evil and wants to judge people for their sin. That doesn't exist. There's actually a contradiction there in terms. What we have to realize is when we look at the Christian faith is we have to realize that God is a God of love and justice. God is a God of both love and justice. We struggle with the idea of an angry God, don't we? An angry God. But I, I, I like to think about it like this. If Jesus stubbed his toe, or he stepped on Lego, or hit his thumb you know, with a nail, or, or the day before he's you know, feeding the 5,000, know, he develops a, a wheat allergy, you know, I can just imagine, you know, it's more relatable, right, to imagine like some, some, some kind of like, he gets wholly mad, wholly mad at that. What we forget is we forget that, that anger is a sign of love. Theologically, two things that anger is a sign of. It's a sign of love, and it's a sign that you just got a parking ticket. That's the other thing that's a, a sign of. But in all seriousness, though, the anger is a sign of love. If you think about those that you love, your family and friends, if somebody does something that ruins their life, they make bad decisions, and they ruin their life, you love them, but you're angry, and you're angry at them, and you're angry at the circumstances, you're angry about it because you love them. Now, some people, no, so think about this. If we are angry at evil things and the bad things that people do to each other and the people that we love especially do bad things, if we're angry at that and God's far holier than us, then isn't it okay for God to be angry at that in, in a generation that's crying out for justice? That's in a generation that says that without recompense, without consequence, you can't have justice. How can we deny God his cosmic justice? That's actually hypocrisy to say, to, to demand recompense and consequence for people, but then to say God's not allowed to do that, and he's more moral and transcendent and just made everything, but he's not allowed to do that, but we're allowed to do that. Now, people don't like think about the idea of an angry God or God judging people, and that's what Christians are taught. They're taught that God does that. Some people will say, well, this this leads Christians to have really bad attitudes and couldn't it lead people to, to violence against each other? Doesn't that encourage violence? Isn't that why religious, religions have fought wars? It's because of this kind of teaching. 
But that's not true. When you're, when you're inside the Christian faith, you actually are relieved from having to take vengeance on anybody because you believe, it's settled in your mind, that God will hold everyone accountable, that it's up to God, that he is the judge, that he's going to take care of it all, he's going to make it all right, he's going to smooth it all over in the end. And so as a believer, as a follower, you're off the hook. You, you, in one sense, you're off the hook in terms of judgment. That's in God's realm, in God's territory. Now, my hope is that in even just some of these initial points and some of the things we're seeing in the Bible here, is that anyone who's, who's closed to this or has rejected the Christian faith because of, of the concept of hell, or even Christians who struggle, wrestle with their faith because of the concept of hell, I hope that this begins to like at least open up a bit of a, a, bit of a crack, a bit of a chink in the armor here that you, you can peer through and begin, if you're open-minded, if you're willing to engage in a rational way, that you, you start to, 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 to enter into this and say like, okay, maybe there's Maybe I need to engage with the subject, subject of hell a bit more. Maybe there's more to it than I've realized before. And as you open up and peer through that crack, one of the big barriers that you face initially is, well, just the visceral idea. I mean, you know, hell, punishment being forever, right? Like God, you know, people being thrown into a lake of fire and being showered with parking ticket after parking ticket after parking ticket forever and ever. That's some people's personal hell, right? Especially if you live in Chicago. But this idea is a very visceral idea. And, you know, especially loved ones, people that you love, that don't believe in God, you know, just, just the idea that, that, that this would be their end, this would be their circumstance forever. It's, it's a really, really heavy idea to contemplate. And there are some days when you can think about it and think, oh, it just makes God look really mean and just like a monster. Like you can, and it's, I don't blame anyone. I mean, I think everyone has those thoughts at times. You understand those are the thoughts we have. And in truth, most Christians, we're not super thrilled about this idea. And any Christian who, who gloats in this idea has missed the point, missed the point of their faith, that God himself does not delight in people's pain. God does not delight in people's pain. But some things, and this is what we're going to get into today, some things are unavoidable. Kind of like the parent who has to send their kid to the dentist. There are some things, there's, there's pain involved, but there are some things that are unavoidable. So how can Jesus, meek, mild, kind, gracious, loving, forgiving Jesus insist that hell is a real place that some people will go to? Because we just read it in Luke chapter 16. This is not somebody else making this up. This is not the Apostle Paul. People always like to blame the Apostle Paul for stuff. This is Jesus. How do we square this away, that Jesus is insisting on this? I'm going to make an argument today, a case study, that most people's idea of hell is not the Bible's idea of hell. That there's great misunderstanding in the nature of hell. And we're going to get insights into, we're going to start pulling this apart and get insights from Jesus that are going to properly frame and help us understand the biblical teaching on the subject matter of hell and the afterlife and, and, uh, and judgment. There's a caricature out there that people are ending up in this place without God in torment, and they're just like, I'm so sorry. I, you know, I, people are crying out like, I just didn't have enough information. You know, if I'd known, you know, then you know, then I, I would have chosen something different. I want something different now. Get me out of here, right? That's not happening. The Bible does not paint that picture for us. And I want to explain. Let's get, so let's get into this, jump into this. One of the big things we notice first when we examine and we study, we do a Bible study, we look at the, the teachings of Jesus, we notice that Lazarus has a name, but the rich man has no name. He's just called the rich man. That's his identity in this life. That's the persona he wants. That's how he wants people to view him. And now, 
in the next life, Lazarus is still Lazarus. He's still known by a personal identifier, but the rich man has no personal identifier. He is just the rich man. I think what Jesus is communicating here is that once you cross from this life into the next life, you end up becoming the fullest version, which sometimes can be the worst version of yourself, that you wanted. That is now fixed in place. You've achieved the fullest identity that you saw in this life. You get it forever. It's permanently fixed. He is now the rich man. And we see in in verse uh, 24, we see he's crying out. What's he crying out for? He's saying he wants Lazarus to come to cross this great divide. And he's in, you know, the rich man's in discomfort. And he just wants his discomfort to be taken away. He doesn't want to get out. He does not ask to get out. All he asks is to relieve his comfort. And he wants Lazarus to serve him. So rather than this man changing his mind and being improved somehow, and realizing, oh, I did some, you know, oh, if only I'd known, if only I had more information, if only, you know, I'm so sorry, I, I wish I'd done things differently. Instead of that, he's saying he just wants his, he's happy in one sense with his circumstances, he just wants a little bit less discomfort. He wants a cup of water or a drop of water on his tongue to help him cope with his circumstances in this place. It's, and it's, so he's not even stayed, he's not improved, he's not repentant, he's not stayed the same, he's now worse because Lazarus was just, a poor person who was laid at his gate, who just got the, the, the scraps of his food. But now he expects Lazarus to be his servant, to cross this great divide and to relieve his comfort, to serve him now in the afterlife. This man has become fully the worst version of himself that he could ever be. With his, lost his identity, now he's fully the rich man. In verse 25, we see it that Abraham calls him child. Now that is in response to the rich man calling Abraham father, you know, it's his Jewish heritage. So in one sense, it's kind of just a lineage idea, and that's primarily what it is. But in my mind, he could have called him son. Uh, In my mind, there's an undertone here, child, that the rich man is immature, thinks like a child, is selfish like a child. This image is being painted for us. So the caricature we have in our minds of some innocent soul who just didn't know any better, falling into the flames of hell, saying, I'm so sorry, please God help me. And God's like, too late for you, suffer and die. That whole caricature, that whole picture that we struggle with that we don't like, that is not happening. That is not the picture the Bible paints for us. The Bible tells us something very different, something very different that the human heart is oriented against God, is in opposition to God, rejects God. Does, we don't like the idea. We, we, we push against authority. We don't want to follow authorities. We want to do our own thing. And what Scripture is telling us here is that we, we, we buck against, we resist God's authority. We're, we're, rebe- we're all that teenager rebellious spirit thing. We've all got that going on big time as it relates to God. And so if we pursue a life without God, God gives us the freedom to make that choice. And in pursuing a life without God, we're free to pursue that, but it's not a good deal. It's not a good outcome. Because think about it like this. If God allows you to have an existence without Him, here's the dilemma. God is the source of all goodness. He's the source of life. He's the source of all comfort, all joy, all love comes from God. All forgiveness and grace comes from God. And so if you're given the ability to reject God and to deny God and to say, I don't want to have anything to do with God, and you end up in this passing from this life to the next life, then you're permanently disconnected from the source of all goodness, 
all that common grace that you experience in this life, all the good things you have in this life, you can no longer have. You no longer, it's the absence of all that is good. So if we, if we resist God and reject God and push back on God, we are choosing ourselves. We have brought upon ourselves an existence, an identity, a life without God, without all the goodness. We've rejected, therefore, our ability to give and receive love, to experience joy. And the, the shocking thing that the Bible tells us is, in the story of Lazarus and the rich man here, is that anyone who ends up in that place without God does not even regret it. To the rich man, heaven is a sham. And there might even be people that end up in this place without God, in this place of hell, that might even still deny that God is God. They might be stubborn to the very end, saying, holding on to the, you know, the digging in their hills for eternity because they ultimately get exactly what they want. They get existence, life, forever without God. C.S. Lewis, the famous author and Christian apologist, he said this, he said that hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. Hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. Anyone who's thrilled about this idea doesn't realize it's a terrible trade-off. It's a terrible trade-off. Yes, you get the identity you've always wanted. Yes, you're free from all obligation and all authority. And yes, you won't have any regrets. You won't wish it was otherwise. And you're probably thinking like everyone else is a complete idiot that they didn't do this. Like I am completely right about this. You get everything and you're convinced that you're right. But what an awful trade-off. You lose all the joy, all the love, all the goodness that you could ever have had and that you did experience in this life. It's gone. So the Bible, so this caricature, I'm hopefully we're destroying this caricature we have in the Bible that people imagine about hell, and we're getting a true, more biblical understanding of the nature of hell. The, the Bible tries to describe hell to us in different ways. So it does describe it as a lake of fire, which is a horrifying idea. Uh, it also describes it as utter darkness. And some have pointed out that there's some contradiction in our minds. There's a contradiction between those two images of hell because fire produces light. So how can it be utter darkness if it's a lake of fire? How do those things work at the same time? What we have to understand is that the Bible's trying to describe something to us that's way beyond our experience and probably at the very edges of our capability to, capability to even comprehend and understand exactly what it is about. There's a lot of, I mean, we don't even understand the physical realm very well. There's tons and tons of things about the physical realm we're still trying to figure out. There are clear things the Bible tells us about the spiritual realm, very clear things that we can know for certain. This, this, and this is true. But we have to be humble and honest that there's a lot of ambiguity around certain spiritual things, especially the afterlife. Even things about heaven. There are certain things we know and certain things that are like, oh, we're not sure. We have to wait and see what it's like. By faith, we believe it's going to be better and good. But even, even when it comes to hell, some of these, some of these images that we're given, they might just be metaphors trying to describe to us what it's like, and it's not necessarily saying it's going to be exactly that image that we're imagining. So, for example, in verse 24, where it says that the rich man is in anguish in this flame, it could be that the Bible is trying to com communicate to us that he's basically being singed and burned up and just in turmoil, wallowing in his own self-pity, wallowing in his own sense of, of who he is and uh, just rejecting, having rejected God and being alone and isolated, that he's, that's, that's what it's like. That's what it's like to be in that place. It's, it's like being in a flame. That could be one way to understand it. In Romans chapter 1, verse 24, it says this, that God gave the people up to the lusts of their own desires. 
Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. This is the awful reality. I mean, in one sense, that God would honor human freedom and human free will, but what a terrible experience. But that's the lust of your own heart, the very things that you want apart from God, that are apart from good, that's not, it's, it's awful. It's an awful experience. It's like being tormented, but it's something we have chosen for ourselves. Let me ask you this question. If the afterlife is real as we believe, where should Hitler be? Where should Stalin be? A lot of people would say, yeah, we need hell for those people, for sure. Think about somebody, if somebody tormented you or abused you or just mistreated you every day of your life, and they did the same thing to everybody you loved, and they were never repentant, never sorry. They were, and they say at the end of their days, they get caught for it, but they say, I would do it all again if I could. What should be the, the outcome for that person? Even if you forgive them, there should still be consequence. We should lock them up and throw away the key. That's the point of judgment. That's the point of hell. Now, there may be room in our hearts. We may, we may hopefully, this you know, pulling back the layers, opening up this, this kind of crack in our thinking. Maybe, maybe there's more room in our hearts to say, okay, may, maybe there's more to hell, but there's another barrier that you face as you journey into this more and more. You might say, and understandably so, honest questions that we have. How can it be that God would give the same outcome to the worst evil people in history, as well as like, you know, my, my nice aunt who just doesn't believe. She just doesn't, you know, she's nice, but she doesn't believe in God. She's an atheist. You know, how can, is that fair? Is that just that they would both end up in a place without all goodness and without God? How does that work? It's a reasonable question to ask. But that question, again, reveals that we don't understand the Bible's teaching on hell. That's another caricature that we have regarding hell. Let's clear this up. I've got five things I want to tell you about hell. Real quick, we're going to go through these really quick. Five things to clear up to give us a firmer understanding of hell. Firstly, the first thing we've got to understand about hell is this, is that Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the judge, and he's far more qualified than Judy. Far more qualified. He knows what he's doing. He's not going to make random decisions. If you respect Jesus... If you, if you think that Jesus understands human weakness because he took on our flesh and he sympathizes with our temptations and that he suffered like us and you believe in the grace of Jesus and you believe that Jesus loves people and you're confident in the wisdom of Jesus, that he's got this mission to redeem people, that he's, he's come to save people. If you believe all that, then understand this, that Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead and his judgments will be perfect. They'll be incredible. They'll be so amazing. They'll be so fair and so wise and so accurate and so good because he, he can perfectly assess the condition of the human heart. He can perfectly tell everyone's motives, everyone's intentions. He can reveal it all and it will be so good. And because of that, we might be quite surprised who's in and who's out because it's Jesus who's judge. It's Jesus who's judge. The second thing, that we learn is that all children are spared from judgment. All children are spared. There's many verses that, that point to this. Uh, one great one is where Jesus says, let, let the little children come to me. Let the little children come to me. God in his mercy receives all children into his presence. The third thing we've got to learn about hell is that there are degrees of experience. There are degrees of experience. This is what's missing from a lot of people's theological understanding of what the Bible teaches us about hell. So the Bible is very clear that it indicates that for those who are the most heinous, the most evil, the most worst, their punishment will be particularly severe. 
and I think we would agree, rightfully so. But for those who actually, they, they didn't believe in God, but they lived relatively moral lives, did maybe a lot of good things, their experience will be far more mild. We don't know how big that spectrum is, but it could be that their experience could be closer to neutral for some people. I'm not saying it's a good place. I'm not saying you should, it, I'm not trying to soften it. I'll say that it, it's okay if you go there. I'm saying, no, no, it's, no, it's not good if you go there. But I'm saying there are degrees that are fitting for how somebody has lived. Therefore, God is still just in his prognosis. The, third, the fourth thing that we learn about, that we must learn about hell, is that there may be a spiritual death for some. Now, this is not entirely clear in the scripture. What is clear is that there are many verses that do tell us you cannot, you cannot honestly erase this from the Bible. You can try and try and try, but you cannot erase from the Bible that for many people, it will be forever. It will be, it's just forever. You, you can try and change the Bible verses to make it say something else, but in the end, it's, it's, it's pretty, I think it's pretty dishonest to do that. I don't think you can honestly look at it and make that conclusion. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that in God's mercy for some, that there could be a spiritual death. So in Matthew chapter 10, verse uh, 28, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says this. He says, do not fear those who kill body, uh, kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Gives us some indication that that, might, that could be, potentially be the case. God in his mercy may do that. The fifth thing that we need to learn about hell is that hell exists to confine evil. Hell exists to confine evil. So that God's creation in eternity will not be tainted again by sin. That there will not be temptation again for the human race to fall into sin and to be separated from God. God is designing a maximum security facility. It's called hell. And in that place, he's going to lock away all demonic powers, all the vile and evil and toxic things, all the things that can spoil his creation, all the things that spoiled it in the first place. Because people wonder, well, if we go to heaven, couldn't all this go wrong again and happen again like it did the last time? The Christian answer to that has to be hell. You can't, this is another reason why you cannot erase hell from the Bible, is that there must be a place forever where there is a chasm that cannot be taken away, that cannot be crossed, where everything evil and vile and toxic and tempting and destructive and horrible is permanently confined forever so that it can never, ever again spoil and distort God's creation. Our heart's desire is to be free from evil, is to be free from temptation, is to avoid all parking tickets. That's our biggest, one of, some of our biggest hopes. We, we, want to be, we, want to, we want to experience the love of God and the goodness of God and the grace of God and the connection with God and with each other forever. And hell means we can do that. Without hell, you cannot have confidence that, that the snake won't get back in the garden. But in that place, it'll be confined forever, separated forever. Now in verse 26, it does say, verse 26, it, it says this, this chasm can't be crossed. And it's a ter terrifying thing to think no one, no one could ever make it out. But there's actually one person who did make it out. The greatest escape artist of all, Jesus Christ. Golgotha, the place of the skull, was hell for Jesus where he was punished by God. He went to hell for us. His life, his righteous life, given in exchange for our sinful life, switched places with us. And he escaped. 
He was in that place, but he escaped that place. And so if you're in Jesus, that's how you escape hell forever, by being in Jesus. I've shared this before, but I'll share it again because it's powerful. This, let me illustrate it this way. The back in the days of the pioneers, if people were to see a, a prairie fire in the distance, they knew that not even the fastest horse they had could outrun the fire, not even shadow facts. And so what they would do is they would burn an, an area of grass, and once it was singed, they would stand in that place, and then the fire would rage around them because they were standing in a place that had, fire had already passed over. And that's an illustration of what Jesus has done for us. If you want to be saved from judgment, you stand in the place that judgment has already passed over, and you'll be saved. You'll be free forever. Let's celebrate the, the grace of Jesus, that judgment has already passed over Jesus. And if you stand in his death and his resurrection, you are saved from judgment. You're saved from all your evil, all your shame, all temptation, all the violent, destructive things, all the demonic powers that are out there. You're saved from all of it forever. And if you're not in Christ today, you can come in and you can be saved from the worst outcome, from just living to your own identity, to your own selfishness, forever and ever and ever. You can be saved from that. I pray that today you will be saved from that. Respond today. Whatever it is, however you need to respond, there's different ways to respond. Maybe you want to follow Christ today for the first time. Do that. Tell us. We want to know. Maybe you're not quite ready, but you need to keep taking steps forward. Keep taking those steps, whatever they may be. Maybe you need prayer today. Maybe you want to get more involved at Trinity. You want to give. You want to serve. You want to join a small group. We've got all kinds of things, important steps to take. You can uh, respond in any way. Do what Thelma was talking about earlier on. You can use that digital connect card. You can text the word enjoy to 94,000 and respond in any way that you need to today. Don't leave today without taking a step closer to Jesus because in Jesus, there's grace for our sin. There's hope for the future. And there's the removal of all evil, the hope that all evil will be taken care of only in Jesus. That's our hope in him.